Stanford University. Uh, my name is Josh Ober. Um, I'm a uh, uh, teacher here in the political science um, and classics uh, departments. Uh, and uh, just very briefly, I'm assuming that everybody here uh, has had a chance to attend uh, the lectures. Uh, Mark Danner has given us two very important, compelling, chilling, uh, accounts of his topic, Terror and the Forever War. In the first, uh, he argued for the establishment of what he calls a state of exception, um, a new approach to uh, dealing with the problem of uh, a new kind of challenge for a liberal state. Um, and in the second uh, lecture, he warned us against the naturalization um, of this state of exception um, by a very different administration from the one that established it. We have um, two uh, distinguished commentators. Um, I will uh, uh, introduce them both um, at the beginning, um, uh, and then we will have the uh, uh, comments, um, after which Mark Danner will have uh, a few minutes to respond uh, to the comments if he, if he chooses uh, to do so, uh, and then we will open it up to general um, discussion. Our first uh, commentator, Stephen Holmes, uh, is the Walter E. Meyer Professor of Law at the New York University School of Law. He previously held academic positions at Harvard, at Princeton, where I got to know him briefly um, as a colleague, uh, and at the University of Chicago. He has written extensively on the history of democracy and liberalism. Uh, in recent years, he has focused attention on the disappointments of democratization after communism and on the difficulty of combating terrorism within the libera, uh, limits um, of liberal constitutionalism. Among his many um, publications uh, are one that I mentioned simply because it matters so much to me, um, an article called Aristippus in and out of Athens, um, in which he challenged an entire generation of classical political theorists to make an argument for why the study of, ancient, uh, of, ancient, of the ancient Greek world is then any possible interest to contemporary students of politics. I feel that my entire career um, has been um, desperately trying to answer um, uh, this one seminal article um, uh, with probably not not a lot of uh, success. Um, uh, since then, I mean, it's all sort of downhill. I mean, he actually you know, defined uh, the world for people like me then. But uh, he did go on to write a lot of other things. Um, uh, Benjamin Constant and the Making of Modern Liberalism. Uh, the Anatomy of Anti-Liberalism, these are only a very small selection of uh, his works, of course. Passions and Constraints on the Theory of Liberal Democracy. The Cost of Rights, Why Liberty Depends on Taxes, written in conjunction with Cass Sunstein. And most recently, and obviously relevant to our topic, The Matador's Cape, America's Reckless Response to Terror. Our second uh, respondent, Elaine Scarry, is the Walter M. Cabot Professor of Aesthetics and the General Theory of Value at Harvard University. Her many interests include the theory of representation, the language of physical pain, and the structure of verbal material making in art and science and the law. 
She is the author of numerous works and important works renowned for their scholarly daring, including on beauty and being just, Dreaming by the Book, which won the Truman Capote Award for Literary Criticism. Uh, I bring this up in part to show the engagement uh, with the world of journalism um, uh, that each of our uh, uh, participants has had. Resisting Representation, and especially relevant to our topic, The Body and Pain, The Making and Unmaking of the World in which she argues that physical pain leads to the destruction and unmaking of the human world, whereas the human creation at the opposite end of the spectrum leads to the making of the world. So thank you very much um, for agreeing to engage in uh, uh, our Tanner series um, uh, this year. Um, and I, if you had decided on a different order, so <laughs> let's come to. Decided that he would be a better climax to the, for our series. So yeah. Um, so well, I'm very glad to be here and thank all of you for valiantly coming on a on a Friday morning, and um, I am have long been a great admirer of Tanner lectures, which are about ethics and philosophy. I think I have an unbroken record of attending them at Harvard. I've given them at Yale. Um, and, but I don't know of any set of Tanner lectures that I've ever heard that's been on a more important subject. So I just want to say hats off to Stanford for um, making uh, the choice to have Mark Danner speak and to speak about real world injury and an ethical problem of the starkest quality. And my, like all the participants, I feel very grateful to um, all the members of the committee um, and to Joan for helping with this. Um, among the many points that Mark made that are worthy to be addressed, remember that one thing he said was that one has to choose between education and prosecution and that he would come down on the side of education. And I want this morning to just quickly sketch for you the argument for prosecution. And I make this argument knowing that probably, I, I was going to say I'm alone in the room. I won't go that far. Probably there aren't that many people in the room who think that prosecution is a good idea, or there are people in the room who think that prosecution is a good idea, but that it's futile. Um, but I want to stress what the argument sounds like, and my own view that it's absolutely crucial that we prosecute uh, and prosecute on the highest level. And I think that maybe one way of, of summarizing it is to say that, um, as a number of us have said over the uh, uh, past couple of days, first and foremost, Mark, that the prohibition on torture exists not just for peacetime, but for war. It exists for emergency. So to say you can override it in an emergency is preposterous. It is the thing in a state of exception for which no exception can be made. It would be like saying, I learned CPR to help somebody if they had cardiac arrest. But actually, if they had cardiac arrest, that's an emergency, so I think I won't use it. Um, and to, and what, what Bush did was to cut the cables on the emergency break. Right now, we're going along slowly enough on legal tracks that we don't think it's so crucial, perhaps, to have an emergency break. But right now, there is no emergency break on the train because of what happened during the Bush administration. And unless it's, the, the, uh, it's, it's put back in there, 
we won't have it when this happens again, and it's only now that we can put it back in there. Um, the period in which we've lived is one in which, for, for quite a few years, people lost track of the fact that there was an absolute moral prohibition on torture. And, um, and, and we can talk about the reasons why that occurred, and I'll come back to that shortly. But at least that's beginning to be cleared up. People are beginning to re-understand that this is not negotiable, this is not qualifiable, um, that this is an absolute prohibition. But now there's a part two to that. And that's the problem we're in right now. And that's to understand that just as the prohibition on torture is absolute, so the requirement for prosecution is absolute. Um, the laws, the international laws, the, the, do not permit um, discretion on this matter. Um, they do not allow any escape provision from prosecuting on the basis that we feel uncertain whether we have the stamina to do it or uncertain whether we think uh, we can make it actually happen. Um, there are some international rules that explicitly permit amnesty um, in a situation from, from, from grave wrongdoing. But torture is actually not among those events. Um, as Michael Scharf writes, the commentary to the Geneva Conventions, the official history of their adoption, confirms that the obligation to prosecute is absolute meaning that states' parties can under no circumstances grant perpetrators immunity or amnesty from prosecution for grave breaches. And so too, the Convention Against Torture requires that states submit cases to the competent authorities for the purpose of prosecution. This means that where persons under color of law commit acts of torture in a country that is a party to the Torture Convention, the convention requires prosecution. And of course, the United States is a party uh, to, to, these, to, these, uh, to, to these treaties and protocols. Um, the second thing to keep in mind is that we often talk as though there are complicating factors to this. And of course, there are complicating factors. But uh, Mark Dana referred yesterday, quite rightly, to the incredible problem created by this deluge of memos uh, that seem to confer authority for doing certain acts. And while that complicates the case, I think it's important to realize that the opposite is almost true, that all those memos, all those papers, actually certify the fact that our country has carried out the legal definition of torture, because in the Convention Against Torture, um, which is only 118 words long, um, there, there are only two requirements for torture to have been committed, as again, legal scholars have pointed out. One is the willful infliction of an injury, and the second is that it's done with official sanction, that it's done with official sanction and under the color of the law, and that's exactly what all those documents provide. So far from allowing any escape, they actually confirm the very thing that, um, that needs to be um, confirmed. And I think that, that um, before going further, I should just quickly say that while it may seem that it's futile and hypothetical to try and prosecute, I'll just quickly remind you of how many historical events start out by simply being uh, hypothetical. So a famous example is the Marshall Plan. I once had the occasion to speak to a Belgium leader who had been present on the night after 
people in Europe heard Marshall's um, uh, uh, convocation speech in which he proposed the Marshall Plans. And according to this, according to this person, whose name is Henri Jean, said that European leaders were up all night saying to each other on the phone, of course, on some level, he's just speaking hypothetically. Um, of course, he may not wholly mean it. But if we just act like he means it, we'll make it come true. Another very recent example um, occurred with the opening of the Berlin Wall. And you've all heard the accounts of how at 6.45 in the afternoon, uh, the, an East German official, when asked when the new law that's going to be more permissive in allowing East Germans to cross over the border will go into effect. And he says, well, immediately and within a few minutes. That is converted into the wall being opened by people simply getting on their feet and beginning to, to walk. So what I'm saying is uh, futile or pie in the sky only if we refuse to um, make it come true and put our hearts to it and put our um, hands to it. Now, what stands in the way of prosecution? First of all, what stands in the way is tremendous mis miseducation. Um, we, we talked yesterday about fear and the way in which people are immobilized by fear. But it's also important to say that leaders matter. Who your leaders are matter. Um, for example, William and Mary, um, William was a gardener. He defined himself as much a gardener as a soldier. And within a few years, everybody in England was gardening. That's the way leaders work. Um, one of my students recently proposed to me that the Victorian love of clutter might have come from the fact that Queen Victoria actually was a well-known uh, you know, clutter a person who collected uh, everything. But we know that the words of a president become the words of its population uh, or, or the words of a leader. You have nothing to fear but fear itself. Ask not what you can do for your country. Um, yes, we can. These are words that radiate out throughout the population so that when a leader endorses something like torture um, or when a leader lies, that is transmitted across millions of people. And this is true not only for our population, but for people trained to um, understand the untruth of what they were hearing. We have, for example, the 400-page 2008 um, FBI report that shows the, the, what I call the cognitive anarchy that FBI agents were suffering because they knew that the CIA agents they were um, co-inhabiting the same room with were doing things that were absolutely impermissible. And there's lots of email records of distress and confusion um, about this. So that's one reason, that, that's one thing that has made this um, very, very hard. Um, but, but in addition to having to turn around this miseducation, there's also the problem of, of acting on what we know. I think um, Steve Kleiman said yesterday, you have to be able to say, um, hell no, but you also have to be able to act on it. And so the question is, why can't we act on it? That is, if you take the number of people who understand that the prohibition on torture is absolute, which admittedly is not 100% of the country. In fact, Mark has pointed out to us that it's much smaller than 100% of the country. Now you get a, an even smaller percent that um, understands that we have an obligation to prosecute. And of those who understand that we have an obligation to prosecute, there's a much smaller number who are actually willing to, um, to act on it or think it's appropriate to act on it. 
And um, why is that the case? Well, I think that there has, of course, been an immobilization of the population through the constant announcement of emergencies. I would even be tempted to say a slight infantilization of the population, but, um, but I, I think that that is something that can quickly be recovered from. There has been a teaching of distrust of fellow citizens. Every time I'm in an airport and hear the barking announcement telling me to not leave my suitcases with a fellow passenger while I use the restroom or get coffee and think that you know it's only my fellow passengers um, as on flight 93 on the day of 9-11 that are a force for good. Um, I see you know, why there's this kind of uh, subverting of an ability to act. But then I also think that there's another reason and that is that I think people, um, especially very you know, gifted and educated people, feel a reluctance to address something that they consider intellectually obvious. Um, and and you know, torture is intellectually obvious. Um, and the, the, you know, much better to be dealing with some you know, arcane, uh, sort of phenomenologically rich, uh, as Janos Kiss says, moral dilemma. Uh, that, that rather than something where it's just starkly right or wrong. Or to take another example, I remember Jonathan Shell writing about nuclear weapons saying, it's expected that by the time you're beyond the sophomore year, you won't uh, be complaining about nuclear weapons anymore. It would be sophomoric to do so. Um, and, and so we have all these ways of trying to uh, avoid the intellectually obvious by seeming to complicate the problem with the ticking bomb or preferring to talk about trolley problems and so on and so forth. Um, and, and even though that can seem a very reputable thing to do, I would just ask you to think of any atrocity you know from the past. And the one that's always most readily at hand is, is Germany, so I'll just take that. But imagine if we were told that people knew widely about the concentration camps and that whatever other motives they had, they also thought it was so obviously wrong that they didn't, it wasn't even interesting to address it. It's not even worth one's time when it's that obvious. I think that we would think that that was a rather obscene explanation. And I think that abstaining from acting on this because it's intellectually obvious is um, also um, a, a uh, obscene. Uh, and and the, I guess the one other thing that I would mention is that, that participating in any um, attempt to prosecute is not comfortable. There's a whole term in some of the social sciences called altruistic punishers that tries to explain how this ever evolved, this interest in justice and punishing, since the people who carry out the punishing actually suffer for it. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and yet, and, and so I think that people recognize in themselves that actually they feel better when they're not punishing. I feel better when I'm not advocating punishing. Um, and they ennoble it by saying, well, you know, perhaps this is uh, a higher road to just say, I, I won't, uh, won't do it. And uh, the, the question is, uh, uh, on, on what possible basis could be, it be a, a higher road when uh, citizens or residents of the country, our country has done this not to us, but to other people. So what now are the avenues of prosecution? And they are national, federal, state and local, and of course international. Um, and I'll, I'll just, I mean, I think that 
that the weight of prosecution has to be borne by people in the country that did it. That's us. But I want to just start with, for a moment, with the um, international arena, because though the burden of prosecution falls most heavily on the, so the shoulders of the United States, um, it's starting with the international is a reminder that the wrongdoing was witnessed by the world and that the obligation to prosecute is a burden that falls on all signers of the Geneva and the CAT uh, and the Convention Against Torture protocols. Um, now, this is the reason that, all, uh, that many other countries have the ability to do this is because of the principle called universal jurisdiction, which stipulates that in the case of the most grave crimes, which includes torture and genocide, states have the jurisdiction uh, even if what happened happened outside their own boundaries and didn't concern one of their own residents or citizens. In a 2009 review of the Instrument of Universal Jurisdiction, Wolfgang Kalik um, counts the countries that have conducted universal jurisdiction cases in the last 10 years, and it includes Spain, Belgium, France, Switzerland, UK, Netherlands, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, Germany, and Austria. Um, and there are variations. I mean, I think you probably all were aware of the German case where the, the CCR, the Center for Constitutional Rights, asked Germany to have a case against Rumsfeld, which a, a Senate report had certified, a bipartisan Senate report had certified that he was responsible for interrogation abuses overseas. Um, and Germany, Germany has universal, dis, uh, universal jurisdiction, but it also permits a federal prosecutor's discretion, and the federal prosecutor judged that though Germany had an obligation to look at this, it wasn't yet clear <clears throat> that the United States was not going to look at it, and the United States had to be given the, the first chance. Um, and there are lots of, of um, other cases that we could talk about. Now, Eric, Eric Posner has written a very re eloquent recent editorial in the Wall Street Journal talking about the receding power of universal jurisdiction, citing the fact that Balthazar um, Garzon, who was the person who bought the case against Pinochet and has also brought a case against five of the people in our government, Gonzalez, Yu, Fife, Haynes, Bybee, and Addington, um, or is that six? Um, six um, people. Um, that, that he was, is recently himself under review because he turned his investigatorial gaze on what happened in his own country. Um, and uh, and, and um, Eric also rightly points out that when Belgium brought a case against Tommy Franks on behalf of Iraqis um, who were injured, and was leaned on by Rumsfeld to get rid of the universal jurisdiction statute. They repealed it um, because we, they were told that, that uh, NATO would not come there if there was a threat of people being arrested. But the fact of the matter is that, of course, though there are ups and downs in universal jurisdiction, um, in, and, and we might be in a slight down period now, the force of the thing remains very much in, in effect. And, um, for example, in Belgium, though they repealed the universal jurisdiction statute, they repealed it but replaced it with a policy that authorized um, the case of criminal offense, uh, that, that in the case of criminal offense, 
Belgium is under treaty obligation to prosecute, and the example that's given is the violation of the Convention Against Torture. So that remains very much in effect. Now, in addition to these universal jurisdiction cases, I think you all know the case of Italy that convicted 23 CIA people in addition to three um, Italian officers and one CIA head in, in Milan, and that's not using universal jurisdiction because it happened you know, right on their own ground. And um, this is not a solitary case. The European Parliament has documented 1,000 rendition flights that um, stopped or went through Europe, um, and, and all these cases are potential ones. Now, if we turn to the federal avenues, um, there's, first of all, the Department of Justice. We know that so far the Department of Justice has declined on this. Um, but I think that we have to credit the possibility that President Obama might be sequencing things. Um, two months ago, I thought that the Obama administration was not going to try and address financial regulation. And then suddenly, we're there looking at the problem. And it may be that we find this same um, emphasis a few months from now or two years from now. It's also the case, as Mark Downer mentioned, that though we all feel, I think, a kind of aversion to the prosecution of people who went beyond these memos and did yet more horrible things, um, as Mark points out, that may call attention to exactly what was being permitted in a way that will lead to cases. There are also very important civil cases, such as Arar versus Ashcroft, um, Arar is the Syrian-born Canadian who was um, trying to change planes at JFK, uh, was uh, taken into custody, and, uh, and after two weeks, uh, renditioned to Syria, first to Jordan, then to Syria, where he was immediately tortured using the very same questions he had been asked when he was on U.S. soil. Um, the, the case was turned down in, uh, in New York, uh, the lower court, when it went to the Second Circuit, the Second Circuit um, declined to hear it on national security grounds, but then the court en banc and sua sponte, without being asked, decided to rehear it. Um, that case was again turned down on national security cases, national security grounds, and yet what was set out in the arguments, and I, I went to this uh, rehearing of this trial, is, um, is something that all of us should be aware, for, as it, aware of as it now moves forward to the Supreme Court. Um, the argument for Arar, which, which was argued by David Coles, um, was that the country had tortured, that the country had com committed conspiracy to torture, and that it had uh, committed obstruction to the courts. The defense did not argue that the United States didn't torture. It did not argue that there was no conspiracy to torture. It did not argue that there was no obstruction of the courts. It simply tried to validate the use of a kind of immigration tool that it had used to uh, evict Arar and, um, uh, in, in, a, in ways that at least one member of present in the courtroom, namely myself, found um, wholly implausible. Um, but in addition to these federal cases, there are local actions. And if you go to the website for the Bill of Rights Defense Committee, you'll see that there are attempts being made to work with town councils to have them um, either call for the kind of thing Mark wants of, 
of some kind of um, author, some kind of accountability at the federal level, whether through um, an independent commission or a congressional committee, or more aggressively, they want the the they think that town councils um, have have can assert jurisdiction uh, to prosecute in state courts um, and and uh, can do so under universal jurisdiction. Um, again, these are all long shots, but that just shows the many avenues in which things are um, starting to happen. And then I guess one other example that I would just remind you of is that, that again, is something I think you all know, the, the decision by um, uh, Brattleboro, Vermont, uh, to, uh, to, to vote to have Cheney and Bush arrested if they ever came to Brattleboro, Vermont, which, which Marlboro did as well. Um, the person who originated that, whose name is Kurt Dames, has been asked by people in a couple of other cities to see if they can, um, if they can do the same thing. And one of those cities is, is um, Jackson, Wyoming, the, the hometown of um, Richard Cheney. Um, and the, I, I guess just in, in conclusion, I just want to say that you know, if, if you look at, at the, the alternatives of education and prosecution, um, the the I think that that and, you know and, and, and again I'm addressing Mark who who puts his considerable influence and intellectual weight behind education and I hope he'll um, change it and put it behind prosecution. To Mark I say education about what education about the line that government officials can't step over, education about the rule of law. The only way to educate people about the rule of law is to carry out the rule of law and to prosecute. Um, during the eight years of his presidency, Bush and Cheney falsely and preposterously arrogated to themselves the right to decide whether Geneva rules were in effect and whether there was an absolute prohibition on torture. If we recommend amnesty or truth commissions, we're arrogating to ourselves the power to subvert the Geneva and CAT requirements. And therefore, I hope we'll actually stand by those rules instead of um, diluting them. Thank you. OK, thank you. Um, and thanks for inviting me <coughs> to participate in this event, great event. So the forever war, <coughs> the, idea, the, the concept of the forever war has an obviously ironic feel about it for liberal critics of the Bush administration and the Bush administration's war on terror because many of the Bush practices are still going on. We heard that uh, yesterday, Eric listed all of them, state secrets and so forth, obviously the escalation in Afghanistan, the uh, indefinite detention without trial, the list of three Americans uh, slated for assassination without due process by our president, and so on. And I think here, um, I, I don't agree completely, I don't agree at all, actually, with Eric and, and uh, his friend Jack Goldsmith, that this, the reason we've retained, Obama has retained these practices because those were the right thing to do to begin with. Uh, I have a different way of approaching it anyway. I think it is, uh, the answer is that it's easier to change a president than to change the way the public thinks and sees. And a president of the United States has to act 
with the, in the democratic political context in which he exists. Obama is president of the same country that elected Bush in 2004 after the torture revelations uh, appeared. Despite all the talk about an imperial president, obviously the presidents can't do anything they want. Bush could not have instituted a draft. He didn't want to, he had reasons not to, it makes for less accountability. But he couldn't have done it if he wanted to. So there's a limit. Obama, uh, I think one of the best uh, symbols of the limit uh, on Obama's power is the, the fact that up through the election at least, he, was, he constantly referred to the fact that on 9-11, 3,000 Americans were killed. Now, as you know, at least 400 of those people killed in 9-11 were non-Americans. But Obama's a politician, and he's not going to say something his public cannot hear. That is, the fact that they were foreigners who died with whom we mixed our blood. Now, it would have been a very easy thing to do. In fact, it would have been very attractive to say uh, one of the things that happened on 9-11 was that America's tradition of hospitality was injured. And that's a, a concept that would have been very easy to understand in the, in the Islamic, in the Muslim world, where there's a strong tradition of hospitality. But not a single American politician said that. Why? Well, <clears throat> maybe one, of the thing, one answer might be that um, on 9-11, Americans perceived uh, that we were attacked by enemies disguised as guests. That is, that, we were, that our tradition of hospitality maybe made us vulnerable. Not sure about this, but I think that if there's an American exceptionalism here, and that's really what I want to try to press uh, Mark upon, upon, what are the ways in which the state of exception he's describing is a, a reflection of something particularly, peculiarly American. One of his most, I think, most brilliant points in the first lecture was his explanation of the repeated claim by Giuliani, and I remember who else, others, that uh, uh, Dana Perino, that there was, there had been no terrorist attacks under the presidency of George Bush. That seems a, a hallucinatory statement, and Mark interprets it like a literary critic as, me, as metaphorical, meaning under the real Bush presidency that is under the war on terror, when the law enforcement paradigm was thrown up, then we were not attacked. And he uses this idea to explain uh, something about the politics. He, his, he has his list, those of you who heard the first lecture, he has a list of the eight components of the American uh, uh, state of exception. And the eighth is the high, the politicization of the war on terror, which is obviously a very um, uh, current thing. We see it a lot. And he quotes Cheney, quoted Cheney yesterday, uh, uh, with his fake, oh, he, uh, Obama is the kind of guy who's going to turn the other cheek. It's interesting, it's almost like a Nietzschean critique of Christianity, you know? And I think that's, uh, that you can also hear that in Jack Goldsmith's uh, claim that terror, you know, that law is the weapon of the weak. So law, like Christianity, is a trick that the weak play on the poor. Uh, <clears throat> this is appeals to a very deep belief that goes, certainly at least 1948, it's a Cold War idea that liberalism does not and cannot provide an adequate framework for national security. Um, it's a, this I think is getting close here to something that's American exceptional. You know, Robert Frost has this wonderful, he was a friend of mine, I was talking to him about taking him to, to a speech of Kennedy and he says, you know, I, I like Kennedy, you know why? He, he's no liberal. You know my definition of a liberal? It's a man who can't take his own side in an argument. So there's an idea of what a liberal is, can't fight back, or better even, two liberals are walking, this is a New Yorker cartoon, two, two liberals are walking down the street and there's a guy mug bleeding on the sidewalk. And one liberal says to the other, the person who did this needs our help. 
So that's the image of what a liberal is. And Rove, you know, he said this. What, is, what, is, what does Obama want? He wants, or what do liberals want? They want to serve legal papers. They want to give therapy to the terrorists. That's the idea. So the liberals can't underestimate. They don't understand that there's a threat. They don't see there's a danger. Why would you ever use the criminal, the law enforcement paradigm if you thought there was a danger? Obviously, that only proves that you don't even know one exists. Now, the hypocrisy here is notable. If, you, if you've seen, if you watched recently, if you notice Lindsey Graham and his uh, colleagues in the Senate, they're trying to micromanage the war on terror. Congress is trying to micromanage the executive branch's war on terror, exactly what they said for eight years should never happen. So let's see, it, could it be that this isn't really a principle, but it's just a partisan tactic? Or worse, the conservative principle, the, ba the basic one, is that if terrorists or enemies believe that we are weak, believe that our president is a weak, they will attack us. So why are conservatives spending so much effort to make Obama look as weak as possible? He, you know, he's out there, he's assassin, he wants to assassinate American citizens, but they still say, you know, he can't take off the gloves. So it, it's a strange approach psychologically. Uh, you have to, I think you need to be a, maybe a child psychologist to understand it, but uh, it, it, it goes back to this metaphorical idea that liberals are sticklers for law, they can't take off the gloves, they, they, believe, they believe in rules of some kind. And this, to understand this, you don't want to go back to John Locke and the theory of prerogative or Roman constitutional dictatorship. You have to go back, as Mark has done, to that great American political philosopher, Clint Eastwood, uh, 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 which uh, I think has been explained best by the uh, cultural historian Richard Slotkin, who in his many books, the one I love most is Gunfighter Nation. And he has this great idea. Which he explains 24 and uh, Jack Bauer perfectly. That is, we're in, there's a garden of civilization. Outside is the jungle. There are savages in the jungle, or Indians, whoever they are. And to fight them, there has to, you need a person called the man who knows Indians. The man who knows Indians is the one who can use the same methods as they do. That is, they are, are lawless. To meet them, we have to be lost. And he's lonely. He can't be married. He can't be civil. But he sacrifices himself for. And I, you know, Bush watched a lot of movies. And I think this is a. This framework is a very important one. And there is a Carl Schmitt connection, to those of you who heard, we've been talking about Carl Schmitt these last few days, and not his theory of dictatorship, which I don't think is so relevant here, but his theory of European public law. And the basic idea is that international law applies to the civilized nations. And outside, in Africa, there are no rules to how we behave, to the set. There's the garden, there's civilization, there's European world. And in the European world, we distinguish between combatants and non-combatants. Those savages out there, like the American Indians, don't distinguish between combatants and non-combatants. Therefore, we may exterminate them. That's the, that is the, uh, the logic. And I think something like that has resurfaced. And whatever this American frontier myths I think looking at Slotkin is a, if I would, this is my suggestion to you, Mark, as a kind of to try to get the American quality of the state of exception, that's the way. Um, why, to understand why torture, why 183 waterboardings and so on, I think looking for the rationality of it, the instrumental value, the information we extracted, is probably the wrong approach. You can see this, in fact, because the arguments Although explicitly it said, well, we're, we're torturing to get information. But by the way, they're guilty. We wouldn't really torture them if they weren't, didn't do something wrong. So there's a backward-looking element. You can hear it there. There's retaliation, revenge. They deserve it. There's something not 
there's something uh, not completely honest about the idea that we're doing this for forward-looking purposes. I don't think it's only the pleasure principle. It's not only that someone else's pain is your pleasure, but there is something that's not completely outcome-oriented, to use Steve Kleinman's term, uh, in these uh, retaliation. You know, so we're going to, they're going to value the retention of their urine more than the retention of their information. And if they didn't have any information, well, at least we've humiliated them. So I think that's the, uh, as Kissinger instructed us to do, by the way. You can communicate strength in a way, I think this is part of the same mindset, by not following the rules. Actually, if you follow a lot of rules, it may be that you look weak, you look concessive. There's a kind of, there's a, um, there's a historical argument here. Lincoln and Roosevelt acted outside the law, and they won their wars. So actually, um, this is a war. We have no metrics. We don't really know if we're winning. But one thing that might suggest we're winning is if we break the law, if we, are outside the, if we go outside the rules. It's a kind of a pseudo-metric in a world without metrics. Um, uh, at least we're breaking the law. Consequences are hard to figure out. And a lot of the conceptualization, including this absurd idea of a trade-off between liberty and security, you know, which is hydraulic conception. So when liberty goes down, security goes up. That's constructed in a way as a pseudometric. So if we reduce liberties, then we're going to somehow magically, since we don't have any clue if what we're doing is actually helping, at least that. At least we're reducing liberties. And the civil liberty, American Civil Liberties Union is screaming. And that's at least a sign of how effective we're being, even if we can't see any other effect. Now, it's, it is objectively absurd. Anyone who knows about American criminal justice system would not believe that our criminal justice system is our soft side. I mean, this, where that idea came from. It's not, it's as if, this idea, the way they write about it is if the law, our criminal justice system was created to coddle criminals. It was to be nice to them. It, in fact, it's a, it's a result of the great lobbying power of criminals in American legal history. Uh, or maybe just the bleeding heart liberals, I guess. I don't think, you know, I think no, this, the, the ignorance of the history and sociology and the anthropology of law in this idea that law is a tool of the weak is astonishing. You know, just study the history of law, and you'll see that law is highly sensitive to asymmetries of power. That is, it represents the interests of the strong. And if it protects the weak, it's because the strong need it, and sometimes they need their cooperation. So just whose rights were defended first, great landowners or orphans? I mean, law doesn't, doesn't work. This is, it's an it's a absurd idea. Of course, if law represented the weak, then if we want to be strong, we should get rid of the law. But of course, if law develops in an unfriendly environment to make the system function better, uh, then it's obviously a, a little dubious to say that now that we have a crisis, we should throw it out the window. The, the paradox here, Mark uh, explained very well, is that this, there's something phony about the whole idea of a state of exception and the way it's used politically, because Bush used the criminal justice system throughout his uh, term of office. There were 200 trials of terrorists in Article III courts under the Bush administration. There were three trials in military commissions. Two of the guys walked immediately, the one confessed. So uh, this is, it's absurd. It's obvious that the tool that's being used is the law enforcement paradigm, not the other, being used in order to deal with it, has at least been used uh, as effectively. But that doesn't fit with the Dirty Harry narrative. Uh, doesn't commit, uh, communicate uh, Schmidtian resolve. Uh, so it, it, uh, it doesn't appear. And in fact, when Obama tries to do the same thing, he's being accused, of course, of weakness. Now, at first, I didn't understand the relation 
in uh, Mark's lecture, first lecture, between these gruesome, uh, hard to listen to descriptions of what happens in the torture chamber and his arguments, because his arguments are all very consequentialist, very practical. You know, they, they broke down the interagency process, they deliberately dismantled it, the experts who knew were not allowed at the table. You know, secrecy and dispatch maybe get very good for action, but it's not good for get, making priorities among in a maze of threats. The world's very complicated, so secrecy and dispatch obviously is not a good way to set priorities. There's this uh, uh, very interesting idea of the broken funnel, where uh, to get you into Guantanamo, it takes someone at the level of a cook, but to get you out, it takes someone at the level of the, the president. You know, there's something, it, it, and you clog the system that way, you waste our resources, we have limited scarce resources, we have limited interrogation capacities. If you clog the system that way, we aren't using uh, so that's, those are all very practical uh, arguments. There's no, they didn't seem to operate with any concept of opportunity cost. Um, and that's really a better way to attack the ticking time bomb, by the way, than, than, the, than deontology. It's just that it's, there's no cost-benefit analysis. That you're so focused on the one event right here, you can't make a plan over time and across the system. But anyway, I, I, di I didn't quite understand it until Steve Kleinemann Scott Kleinman gave his uh, remarks yesterday, which I, were very helpful, because he said what Mark is doing is trying to tell us who we are. And you can't really do better than we've done until you know what, what it is, who we are. So the, your first metaphor was, you know, we're in a cage, there are bars, we can't see them, we bump into It was very strange. But then I realized that these bars, they're us. They're our way of seeing the world, in a way. Or at least that's a, these vigilante Myths, for example, the idea that we're not going to be successful unless we break the law, unless we, um, uh, unless we <laughs> inflict pain outside of the, outside of, uh, of uh, the rules that Elaine just talked about. These, the uh, uh, unless we can shake free of this, these myths of the right stuff, the heroic myths, uh, uh, which are of course also very infantile. The the temptation. There's also a way in which succumbing to these myths is a, was a uh, submission to bin Laden. It was allowing bin Laden to take control because it meant it was, there was an imitative quality. And here, uh, we, we're, he, uh, uh, the attack on us was lawless. He did something completely out of bounds, absolutely forbidden terrorism. And in order to respond, we had to do something absolutely out of bounds, to be mimetic, to mirror, to be at the same level. And this fits in with Mark's uh, devotion to George Kennan who says in, in the Cold War, of course, one of the great dangers was to imitate the enemy, become, and that's a very typical thing. That it, it isn't an instrumental activity, but in a conflict situation, you tend to imitate your enemy, not because of its good consequences, but because of the logic of, uh, of conflict itself. Um, this, so, uh, I think part of it, what happens in the torture chamber in those uh, descriptions that Mark gave us, there was a search for a place where we could use violence, where violence could not be used against us. Which, you know, the, the, the terrible realization on 9-11, the shock for the leadership is we, the, the greatest country and the greatest country in the world, the most powerful, military powerful country in the world, unmatched military power, which was totally useless against those who wanted to hurt us. The idea of the missile shield, which they're dreaming about, totally useless. They can sneak around it. Uh, and they could put an atomic weapon in their fantasy. That's what they saw, a nuclear follow-up attack. The total 
helplessness of uh, we who are totally omnipotent. So that's impo- the, uh, the, the impossibility of accepting that, I think, led to these, the, what I see as kind of theomorphic fantasies in the, in, the, uh, in the torture chamber, and also to the idea, which is, of course, in a practical sense absurd, that you, we can never be too aggressive, that there is no limit to force, that force can never be self-defeating, that it can't produce, for example, it can't uh, encourage recruitment into jihadi movements and so on, things that are obvious, that maybe there's, it's a mistake to dirty our own face in this way, that that could be counterproductive. That seemed somehow not. Now, mind you, this is not just a, a fault of the Bush administration. Zarqawi, Al-Qaeda has done it too. Al-Qaeda, by killing so many Muslims, they have dirtied their own face. They've destroyed their own credibility. So they're much weaker than they were, because of, not because of what we did, but because of their indiscriminate use of violence. Indiscriminate violence is self-defeating. It can be, and that's obvious, but somehow it wasn't incorporated. And I think that's uh, part of what, um, what Dan is talking Now, <clears throat> I think this idea, another way to kind of get at this, at the core of his analysis, is um, what, was, what was the enemy, this is a very Schmittian question, at which they were aiming? After 9-11, they were shocked by this idea that these protean, uh, non-state actors, dispersed, uh, difficult to find, maybe get a hold of a nuclear weapon, that enemy, they, they couldn't defeat. So this is actually one of the paradoxes of the idea of the forever war, because they were trying to get away from the idea that it was going to last forever. That's why they didn't like crime. The crime model, crime's going to always last. It's forever. The war against drugs, it's always going to be. The crime is always going to be that you can manage it, you keep it at a low level. They wanted something to end. They wanted a war. Their idea, you know, mission accomplished, uh, defeat them totally, obliterate them, and so on. Um, and part of the impulse for this, still the great mystery, why after uh, America was attacked by Al-Qaeda did the United States invade Iraq? What, what is, and you could say, well, it was simply cynicism. They wanted to do it, and they use this as an excuse. I don't, think, I don't believe that. I think 9-11 changed not just their opportunities, but also their motives in a way. But part of the, the shock was, if, or the idea was this. Um, I'll put it another way. Uh, Saddam Hussein ran a state. And if you run a state, you can have statues built for you. Now, it's possible to knock over statues, so that's a good way to show that you can win. Bin Laden, no state, no statues. He, he had his image on millions of T-shirts, but you can't knock over millions of T-shirts. It's just not possible. So if you can graft Bin Laden onto Saddam, then you can knock them over together. It's a kind of a fantasy of defeating the enemy that you know you can't defeat, that's going to be there. So I think this, or another way to put it, there's no front in the war on terror. But they imagined, it's kind of not battlefront nostalgia. Imagine there's a battlefront. And Cheney kept saying that. Iraq is the geographical base of the people who attacked us. <laughs> Completely not, uh, absurd. But uh, expressed this idea. Here's a, a way, a place. And I think that, these, this imp- trying to find a place where you can be victorious in a battle, in a battle that um, uh, looks like, uh, in a way, is unwinnable. Uh, if you're instead, uh, so that's one thing, is this, but he also associated this, this shift. Uh, so he's fight, they're fighting an old enemy, rogue states, states you know you can defeat instead of this, this group you can't defeat. There's another old enemy that he's attacking, and of course there are the liberals. That is the people who want to have Miranda rights. Uh, these are old enemies, the church committee, 
uh, those, they're also easy to find. And I think part of the problem here was that by the di you know, d uh, diagnosis dictates remedy. And if you diagnose the, the, the source of the threat, the source of the vulnerability as law, as reading Miranda rights, then actually it's going to be quite easy to win. You can knock over the cell. All you have to do is not read Miranda rights. All you have to do is not obey the law, and then you're going to win. But of course, that's an obvious fantasy, because the source of the vulnerability was not law. And here's a, and I don't know if this is a criticism of you, Mark, but I'll put it this way, that what is the reason the conflict we're in seems like it's going to last forever? Because its source is not simply um, Al-Qaeda or, uh, or the decision of our government to torture and so forth, to act outside the world. The source is, that, is, the, is the, the, the situation that's been created, call it globalization, um, by, the, by the conditions of our own prosperity. The world we live in, what was revealed by 9-11, is the vulnerabilities created by uh, uh, cheap airline tickets, by uh, petrodollars pouring into unstable parts of the world, by the nuclear weapons, which we've invented other weapons, ATM, GPS. You want to know how the White House is going to be hit? The GPS system, which we gave our enemies to use to fly their small uh, missiles and so on. The, we, we have, and these things, cheap airline tickets, you can't declare war. Cheap airline tickets are not an enemy. You can't declare war on them, and you can't defeat them. And you can't get rid of them because they're the sources of uh, this kind of thing, is the source of our prosperity. It's not going to go away. There's no restoring the status quo ante, not because Bush's metaphor of war, but because of these vulnerabilities that are there that must be managed over time cooperatively and can't ever be definitively closed. The, the fallacy of the Bush administration is to try to interpret that in a Schmittian vein as an enemy that can be defeated. And I think, just to skip to the end here, I think in this sense, we've got, we are a little bit better off uh, with Obama, and there is a change in the Obama focus. Uh, I, he's not really, I don't think he's trying to express our power by breaking the law. I don't think he's very excited about, he's, sent, he's escalated the, the troop levels in Afghanistan. He doesn't, and they're right, the Republicans see this. He's, he's not, he doesn't take a lot of pleasure in it. He doesn't think of it as uh, something heroic. What's upsetting, um, I, I think, is that he's, he's, he's looking and focusing on the unsexy stuff. That is, you see him just now, last few days, trying to lock down the nuclear materials. Focus on the capacities, because some of the things are in our control. Uh, capacities create intentions. You don't want to leave nuclear materials around to be used against us. There's always going to be people who hate us. We could kill every jihadist in the world. There's going to be some other lunatic who can get a hold of this material and exploit our vulnerability. So as, uh, I think the focus on the the conditions, trying to limit the conditions, the flow of petrodollars into unstable parts of the world, those are things we can control. That's not an enemy, though. Those are, those are the problems, the threats, and, and it's never going to be complete. And it's very hard for politicians to say this. We cannot defend you completely. Just one last point about law, though. I think his impulse in the, in the legal frame and dealing with the terrorists themselves is to use law as much as possible. You saw that in his statements. It's difficult to do it because there's resistance. But here's the, here's the, uh, the, the theoretical uh, point behind it. One of the main uh, uh, achievements 
of legal civilization is to use the individualization of culpability as a way of preventing spirals of violence. That is one of the main problems of human society is that violence is mimetic. And if you kill my cousin, I'm going to kill your cousin. And in order to try to lower and to slow down these cycles of escalations of violence, spirals of violence, legal systems arise and focus on only the perpetrator. And they, they say, we are going to, we're going to separate very clearly the guilty and the innocent, focus on those who committed the violent act, and not on collective punishment, not on their kin group, not on their, uh, their, neighbor, their, their associates, their uh, members, fellow members of their group. And this doesn't eliminate violence, obviously, but it's, it's a technology developed over time. It's still very relevant. And obviously, if what happened on 9-11 was that Bin Laden invited America to enter into a cycle of vengeance, group upon group, then the thing to have done was to have kept our heads cool and not entered into collective punishment, not attacked a random Arab country, not have uh, uh, swept up into Guantanamo uh, 600 innocent people along with the 200 semi-guilty ones. Uh, and this, it turns out that that rule of law idea, individualization of culpability, has uh, 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 been imitated, or what, what, what the meaning of the whole Petraeus revolution inside the American military coin or the counterinsurgency doctrine is exactly that. Separate the guilty from the innocent. Be, you know, this is a special war because our enemy does not wear uniforms. They do not have a nation to which they're loyal. It's very hard to distinguish them from the non-combatants. And so you need to put huge emphasis in doing that. The only way to manage them, deal with them, lower the amount of violence, is to very carefully distinguish the guilty from the innocent. So I think Petraeus, his policy, the counterinsurgency doctrine itself, is an affirmation of the value, not of all of the, the adequacy of criminal justice system for dealing with terrorism, but of the correctness of the basic principle of criminal law, which is that we need to, uh, uh, in responding to an attack upon ourselves, we need to distinguish those who attacked us from others who resemble them and who are in their neighborhood. That's, a, uh, I think, a very good persuasive argument, but it's one the country still resists because those are the bars of the cage uh, in which we live. Thanks to both of our commentators. Um, and now um, uh, Mark Danner will uh, give a uh, response. Thank you. Thanks, Josh. Thank you very much. Well, um, I think nothing better demonstrates my personal indebtedness to the Tanner uh, Committee and to, being, to them for inviting me here than the quality of these, uh, of these responses, which have been, I think, uh, astonishing and rather daunting. So I thank Deborah Satz and, and the others who are responsible for these, uh, these events. Uh, it's uh, terrific. Uh, that was the easy part of my talk. <laughs> um, I, I'm tempted to begin with, with a, a loud screaming assertion, which is that um, uh, education and prosecution are not alternatives. They are not alternatives. They are not alternatives. I do not believe they are alternatives. If anybody really thinks they're all, I believe that, 
I don't think Elaine does. But if anybody really thinks that I believe firmly that they're alternatives, stand up now, I'll take you outside in the hallway, and we can talk it over, and I'll convince you otherwise, because I, I, I don't think that. Um, but I'm, I left an opening here because I didn't describe and left out something that, that Elaine did uh, rather brilliantly in filling in that gap, among other things. How, indeed, can you get to a point uh, of rendering justice. And I may well have, in my, my talk, uh, by emphasizing the commission, uh, left the impression that I think education is it. Uh, prosecution, the very idea of prosecution is hopeless. Uh, we should forget about it, destroy torture, the idea of torture, and forget about the torturers. I do not believe that. Uh, and I do not believe that uh, not only as a principle, I do not believe that as a prediction or a prophecy of what will happen in the future, uh, or, by the way, uh, a, a representation of what has happened in the past with countries that are similarly, have similarly inflicted themselves uh, with the burden of having committed these kinds of acts and the question of how to deal with them afterwards. Uh, sometimes these questions uh, take a very long time to deal with uh, in the legal system, uh, as Elaine knows uh, more than anyone and other people in this room. Uh, the idea of a truth commission can very often be a kind of portal into that. Uh, the portal can come uh, in many other forms as well. Elaine talked uh, 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 extremely provocatively about, about several. And I think this is one of those issues where it is possible, and as I mentioned yesterday, that even so unprepossessing uh, and unpromising a fora, uh, which seems to be actually a political defeat for the idea of prosecution, I'm talking about John Durham and the fact that it has been shoveled over to his uh, auspices and his responsibility. He's the federal prosecutor from uh, New Haven, charged with, or charged with investigating the destruction of the 92 videotapes that show uh, the uh, enhanced interrogation or torture of uh, Abu Zubaydah and other prisoners. It has now been shoved over to his charge to investigate those procedures that went beyond what the Bush administration permitted. And there are a number of those. As I mentioned yesterday, there's something almost inherently pathetic about the notion of a prosecution that would attack the idea of waterboarding with too much water or too much frequency and leave aside those who actually waterboarded and approved those processes. Nonetheless, an optimistic way to view this is that such a prosecution, if it were to happen, would be one of those portals into this issue for the legal process and for the, the, the political process as well. Let me try to clarify what I was trying to, to, to say yesterday or maybe uh, expand on it just a little. I think, and in one place we have a very, I think you saw a very considerable disagreement and simply in premise between our two respondents today, is their view, their implied view of, of, of the politics of the society and the collective politics, uh, how those collective politics view torture and, and whether those collective co politics, cultural, political, uh, are responsible for it or whether they in fact could be freed from it if leaders were simply brave enough to bring prosecutions. And there's a very absolutely diametrically opposed uh, uh, view here. Um, I think, uh, to go back to the point I just left on the table, that um, uh, the political uh, uh, obstacles of having a forthright series of prosecutions, a uh, fair, and I use that not as a legal term but as a political one, a fair series of prosecutions, those obstacles at the moment are very great. I think that the only way uh, to lower those obstacles, always uh, allowing for the fact what I just said, that there can be all sorts of avenues that are unexpected, but the most 
promising way to lower those obstacles is a process of public discovery of what happened, even though we know a great deal about what happened, since we don't know everything, there are always those, notably the former vice president, who can say, if you had access to the documents, you would see the effectiveness of these procedures, not only their effectiveness, but the fact that they saved hundreds of thousands of lives. He will always be able to say that until there comes a point, uh, some process is put in train, which can get to the absolute bottom of the barrel um, when it comes to these documents and the record of what transpired. And I say that with a feeling of excruciating ponderousness and boredom because I've been reading these documents now for seven years. And uh, they tell in great detail what happened. But still, the vice president, former vice president and others will still be able to come out and say, you know what, you don't have the right one. Uh, and so the only way to get to not having the right one, the bottom of the barrel, is going to be the process I uh, am talking about. That's the closest we're going to get. So I think it's necessary for that reason. I think it's necessary also to perhaps bridge the difference between the assumptions about our society and its beliefs about torture uh, that embodied, were embodied in Stephen Holmes's uh, excursus, you know, fascinating and provocative as it was, um, and there are all sorts of things I'd like to answer in that, to get from his assumptions which are that torture uh, is an animating idea in our cultural life, that it goes back a very long way, uh, that using it is a sign of commitment, that it is, uh, speaks to something very deep in how the society was put together, something that you can see in our cultural artifacts, particularly very dramatic ones like Dirty Harry, uh, but the idea of the gunfighter himself and so on that go back very, very far. And I do agree with this. I'm not sure how decisive it is, but I certainly... Uh, I certainly agree with it. And I would point out, though, that there is a contrary tradition. Does anybody here know Fort Apache, for example? Fort Apache, of course, has a very, it deals with precisely the same issues. Uh, and it is, if you see it now, it's, you know, it's his version of Custer. It's brilliant with, with uh, John Wayne uh, and Henry Fonda. Uh, and it's essentially a critique of this kind of thinking. Uh, because Henry Fonda comes in and he's the stylish, gorgeous commander who is going to give them hell and destroy all the Indians. And John Wayne is the guy on the scene who says, you know what, you can bargain with these people, they don't want to fight, you can do it. And uh, Henry Fonda will hear nothing of it and is eventually immolated, basically, in a spectacular scene. Anyway, I recommend the movie, but it represents a very different tradition than the one you're describing. And it, it's seen in this context a kind of critique of the Bush administration, because you've got headquarters in the, per, in the person of Henry Fonda slash Custer, and you've got the guy on the ground, uh, which is to say the interrogator on the scene. Uh, anyway, um, so uh, can we bridge this, this distance between the views uh, put forward by um, implicitly and explicitly by Stephen Holmes and those that are held mostly implicitly by Elaine Scarry, which I take to be you know what, if we do push forward with ideas of prosecution from all sorts of directions, the local level, the state level, the federal level, the international level, some of those, of course, conflict, notably the national and international. So it's a predicate for, for universal jurisdiction that you don't, in fact, have federal, as you, as you pointed out. But if we start on all of those things, we will get there one way or another. And that might well, might well be true. Uh, but that isn't the way I see it uh, from where I'm sitting. I think it would be rather a tragedy uh, if this came down to universal jurisdiction. Because I, and I think this has happened in other cases of Euros, universal jurisdiction. That is you know, Serbia, for example. That is that, that 
prosecutions, if they, if they happen, I think uh, it is enormously more valuable that they happen here. Uh, and it is possible these people, if they were prosecuted, remember, prosecution does not mean people are going to go to jail necessarily. There are appeals to juries, for example. There are appeals of exigent circumstances. There are, I'm not sure a lot of these people should go to jail, actually. The people who, and this is a thing we can debate. I'm not sure that the person in the room pouring the water, um, uh, I mean, it sounds absolutely grotesque to say this, and I'm saying it not very seriously, <laughs> but with the idea of provoking comment. I, I think there is a judgment to be made on the degrees of guilt that people bear in doing what they did that is properly decided by American citizens. Uh, by, you know, that would be by far my preference. And to me, the only road to get there uh, is going to run through uh, a process by which the country educates itself in some way. First of all, develops uh, a public story about this. And I've written about this before, the idea of frozen scandal which is, those of us who remember Watergate, which is my political coming of age, certainly watching those hearings, have a certain, I'm sure you do too and you do too, have a certain sequence in mind. There's a revelation first, you know, you have journalists get leaks, they reveal the wrongdoing, then you have investigation. Investigation can't be done by the press, it has to be done by a public, communally gathered, communally understood process, by Congress, by the courts, by whatever, and then you have expiation afterwards. Uh, you have people tried, punished, people lose their jobs, policies are changed, the government decisively does something. So we don't have these policies. I mean, Elaine, I think, pointed out brilliantly um, that these things are still going to be with us until we follow the law again. And following the law, and I agree with this, means having prosecutions eventually, whether or not people go to jail. Um, uh, but that process I just described, that tripartite process that's built into me as a you know, young teenager lying on the couch watching the Watergate hearings, I remember my mother saying, get outside, stop watching those hearings. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> um, but you know, we, we live in an era where squarely between step one and step two, we are, you know, the, the wheels are going <laughs> and they've been doing that uh, for at least six years in which the revelation has happened. We know all this stuff, even if we don't know a lot of the details, but there is not a society, societally sanctioned investigation. We've had you know, scores of investigations, but not the investigation that we can, as a society, depend on and put our trust in and, and as a society, agree this is it, this is the truth. And I think you need that, not necessarily in temporal order, because things could happen differently, but you, in, in logical order, you need that before uh, uh, before the final step. Uh, so anyway, I don't think they're, they're, they're alternatives. Um, you know, Stephen Holmes made uh, so many points I'd like to uh, respond to that we won't have any time to talk. So let me uh, uh, just choose um, uh, a few. I mean, his remarks were extremely rich and thought-provoking. Um, you know, I kept thinking of a, a lunch I had with uh, Richard Kapuscinski, who you, who you may know, spent a lot of time at, at uh, NYU, among other things who is a wonderful writer who I hope people in the room know. He did The Emperor, among other things, died suddenly a couple of years ago. Great, great writer. And I had lunch with him in New York in the fall of 2002, September, and everyone was talking about the Iraq War. You know, would there be a war? Would it happen? Um, and Richard, I said to, to Richard, who, who famously covered 32 coups and revolutions, and this is what he did. He ran around the world covering political violence. And I said, Richard, um, 
is there going to be a war? What do you, th what do you think? And he said, uh, oh, of course, Mark. Of course there'll be a war. And I said, why, why are you so certain? You know, this was September. And he said, Mark, armies like to fight armies. <laughs> and I was thinking this when, uh, throughout, throughout Stephen Holmes, you know, it's absolutely clear to him that everything Stephen said in, 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 uh, in brilliant and uh, creative fashion, he, he sort of, you know, summarized and concretized in that phrase, which is that we need the enemy. Where's the enemy? And you saw other signs of this, you know, Rumsfeld saying there are not enough targets in, in Afghanistan in the first uh, uh, war cabinet meeting uh, after 9-11, the, the quest to find uh, an enemy that's concrete, that you can hit, that you can destroy, that you can use. And I think you made this point brilliantly that if you can't find an enemy, you can't find your power. You don't, you, you know, you're powerless all of a sudden because you have nothing. It's like, you know, and there's nothing to hit. And the U.S., you know, particularly led by a group of people who were very much had this belief in the so-called unipo unipolar moment. Um, the idea that the United, that this was the great moment for the United States to affect massive world change. You know, the end of history, remember that idea? The notion that you, you had this triumphant United States and a triumphant system made up of capitalism uh, uh, and democracy that was going to spread around the world and the U.S. had no rival, no rival at all. And suddenly there's an attack which I agree completely embodied all these other squishy, feely, slimy things like ATMs, airline tickets, international, you know, satellites, all of the stuff that, lo and behold, you can't control with the power of the state. And I, I agree uh, completely that, um, that this was one of the, this was a guiding idea. I mean, it wasn't as if anybody said it in the meeting, but in fact, the, it looked at in this way, the Iraq war was in a sense inevitable. And a fantasy was constructed to make it happen, but it's almost as if the entire gravitational pull of the state led toward having, you know, that uh, attack and a resumption in some way of credibility, or restoration in some way of credibility that, the, uh, uh, that Rumsfeld and Kissinger in their different ways uh, described. Um, Oh, God, I have a whole page here. And again, I'm, I'm aware uh, that we... Let me just say something at the end, and maybe in the course of your questions, I can take up some more of his points or, or, at, lunch, or at lunch afterwards. Um, the, the point at the end about the, the uh, uh, individualization of guilt, or I'm sorry, what, were you, what did you, uh, you call it? The uh, individualization of culpability, I think, also is, a, is a, a brilliant point. And of course, there is one of the great, uh, the great standing you know, uh, monuments of, of world literature, the Oresteia, uh, is about that, is the great treatment of how that, that process uh, uh, happened. And I thought your uh, r remarks on it were, uh, uh, were remarkable. Um, it is the truth, though, that, that, and as you say, that this is the opposite of what, of what the Bush uh, administration uh, did. Um, I'm always, I'm looking at Colonel uh, Kleinman there, and uh, what's the military phrase about uh, never ascribe to, uh, uh, to planning what you can't, what can be more easily ascribed to stupidity? There's some ver version of that. It's a little bit more poignant. It's a little bit more poignant. As we discuss this at this level, I, I, I start to think that we, we, we risk, in a way, doing that, that there were, as you highlighted in your remarks, there were more primal uh, uh, forces at work, um, which I tried to talk about a little bit in, in my first lecture, um, that the decision making, uh, one reason it appears so improvised, and Eric Posner talk, talked about this as well, that not only do you do this during states of exception, it's what defines them, 
uh, improvisation, but when you improvise, you act out of motives uh, that are less than rational. Um, they're not, things aren't staffed out, they're, you, know, you make decisions on the fly. People are encouraged to get on the bandwagon. When we talk about, you know, I have a very good friend who was a uh, uh, senior diplomat for years and years, and was finally undersecretary uh, of state under Clinton, and he, um, he said to me, you know, in situations like this, it's very hard to be in the room of hard guys it's very hard to be the soft guy pushing back. Nobody, nobody wants to be in that political position. Because first of all, you're going to lose. So there's, there's, uh, there's no payoff to it. Uh, and secondly, you eventually get pushed out of the circle. You know, he, and he described in some detail, and again, maybe we can talk about this, again, the, the decision-making process that, that takes over uh, in the wake of such an attack and that, uh, uh, that, seizes, that uses improvisation as a kind of portal way through to seize control of, of, uh, of policy making. Um, I'm, I'm, as I say, I have a lot more uh, here to, to, to answer, but I think what I should do is sit down and try to slip those into, uh, into the discussion that follows. And I just want to thank uh, very sincerely the, the, my respondents, because these comments have just been so uh, rich today and, and yet, uh, yesterday. They've been just terrific. So uh, thank you. Thank you for coming, and let's talk. <laughs> I will try to take a cue as best I can, but um, uh, I'd like to offer the first two questions or comments um, to uh, Eric um, uh, Posner and to Steve Kleinman. Um, so as to continue the discussion with okay. yesterday. Okay. Thanks. So, uh, yeah, I have a comment and a question for Mark. Um, first of all, the comment is uh, you have to choose between education prosecution. And the reason you have to choose it is that education requires giving people amnesty. The, the sort of truth commissions that you have in mind, and when we know this from history, think of South Africa, for example, where this idea, we'll give you amnesty so that you'll tell us everything. Right, we want to find that truth. Can I, can I interrupt you just very briefly? Are you going to start screaming? No, yeah, I'll start screaming. No, just that, of course, but you need to have a credible threat of prosecution in order to, right, to offer amnesty, in obviously. South Africa, they end up not, yeah, not having a credible threat. Uh, which, 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 partly because it turns out, you know, prosecution is extraordinarily difficult. We just know this from history. Attempts to prosecute people for these sorts of quasi-political crimes. Although we've never had a record so complete, I think. Well, but think, think of Oliver North. As example, Elaine pointed out. Right? So you, you have to give him immunity so that he'll testify before Congress. And then it turns out that because of the immunity, you can't uh, convict him. Anyway, that's just my comment. I, I, mm -hmm. I, just, I, I do think there's a tension there, which is why Absolutely. when you say this, you get objections from the people who are in favor of prosecution. It's not mm -hmm. so easy to say we can have both. Mm -hmm. But, but I want to I go back to something I brought up uh, the other day, and, and the, 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 the role of the state of exception here. And I think it's, your comments have helped crystallize in my mind what, what the question here is. So the question is, you know, why, maybe, why did torture take place, right? Uh, or why did the Iraq war take place? And you, you made a plausible case that, certainly with the respect to torture, and, and, I, and I agree with you about the Iraq war as well, that these were kind of stupid uh, responses uh, to the problem. And one is that the president just was foolish, that we were just unlucky to have a president uh, who made mistakes or who had advisors who had agendas that were not relevant to, to the problem. And I'm, gonna, I'm asking you which of these is closest to your view. So the first okay. is that we, have a, we had a foolish president. If we had had a different president, things would have 
been different. The second, though, which is intention, is that it is more like what uh, Steve uh, has brought up, and which you also brought up. There's a cultural psychological explanation. And the irony of, of Steve's uh, account is that it tends to exculpate the president. Mm -hmm. The president had to respond to these powerful cultural currents. He had to show that it was tough. If he hadn't, you know, the public would have been demoralized, outraged, you know, would have uh, thrown him out of office and replaced him with somebody who, who was tough. You, you, you know, when you say you have to be the toughest guy in the room, you know, that applies to the president as well. Mm -hmm. So the, set, the second type explanation is some kind of cultural psychological explanation having to do with you know, American history. I'm kind of, well, th that's certainly a current, but th those two aren't changed. Now the third is, and the last, is that there's something wrong with our constitution? And, and you know, when you, when you when you emphasize the state of exception and you put it in your title and so forth, you know that that's really what I thought you were going to argue. And I'm I'm not sure whether you're arguing this or not. In other words, the complaint is that um, the executive had too much discretion uh, in uh, in our system. Now now again, there's a tension here between number one, which is that the president really was constrained, but we just had a, a kind of a criminal uh, administration who just broke all the rules. But the other interpretation, which is the one I was uh, trying to uh, uh, impress, uh, to advance, was that in fact we have a constitutional system which gives the executive a tremendous amount of discretion, both in normal times, but especially, and both in normal times and in emergencies, especially in, uh, in, in emergencies. And so your, 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 your argument here would be uh, that, we, that we need a constitutional change of some sort, you know, not necessarily an amendment, but a different understanding of what the Constitution is, so that we can't actually have a state of exception, right? And, but, you know, but here, I'm confused, because you seem to think it's inevitable or necessary. State of exception means executive discretion, right? But the alternative view is no states of exception. That's just not consistent with our traditions or with the, you know, the, the, the best way of accomplishing things. And just, uh, I'll close just with this irony here, which is that although, you know, the Bush administration did uh, advance uh, interpretations of this con constitution that emphasized executive power, that were, I, I agree, more extreme than his predecessors, but still continuous with them, right? Not that different from what predecessors have argued. Congress went along, right? Congress went along. Constantly, right? The AUMF, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. to go into Al to go after Al Qaeda. Also, the AUMF for the uh, Iraq War, the USA Patriot Act, the Military Commissions Act, the Protect America Act, right, and other statutes. Congress went along, and the courts went along. You know, until the end, and even even toward the mm -hmm. end. You know, if you think of the Supreme Court, you know, eight years, nine years later. It's still not the case that someone in Guantanamo has been actually released as a result of a specific judicial order, mm -hmm. right? Um, it's well, not, so so your, your claim here might be, well, Congress is supine, the courts were excessively deferential. We have, we have to constrain the president. So that's the third hypothesis. And, and I guess I just want to ask you, you know, which of these you, you think are correct? I don't think you can actually uh, believe that all three are correct, but maybe maybe you can. Uh, so, so 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 what's your what's your view here? Okay. Uh, well, first of all, the first question: uh, uh, prosecution um, and or and education. I agree with you that those are obviously interrelated, very much so. Uh, and the educational uh, process we're talking about uh, has to be calibrated for, if possible, to allow prosecution subsequently. Now. That sounds, that begs a lot of questions, I agree. Um, it's clearly the case that if you uh
are going to offer people immunity, which the, you're right, this is where the human rights community steps off the bus, basically. And, and they have already when, uh, as people probably here, here probably know, Senator Leahy has proposed a truth commission of sorts. This is sitting in, in, in the Senate. Um, and it does have immunity built into it. And if you, if you offer people Im immunity, you're essentially uh, foregoing uh, uh, prosecuting certain people. That should be emphasized. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're foregoing prosecuting everybody, but you are foregoing prosecuting certain people. As I said while you were, you know, during your question, obviously to have any use of immunity in an investigation, um, you need to have a credible threat of prosecution. So they're linked. You could come at this from the opposite way, which is to say they have to be linked together. And the question is, how much are you going to give up on the prosecutorial side to get the education side? So I think of it as uh, you know, that awful metaphor, which I completely agree with, with uh, Stephen's uh, critique of, the balance. You know? I, and I think that that metaphor is very deceptive when it comes to talking about national security and, uh, and our, our liberties, et cetera. And I'm sorry that Obama seems to like to use it along with everybody else. But here there is, in a sense, a kind of uh, balance or zero-sum game, whatever you'd like to use as the, uh, uh, as the phrase. But I think it can be calibrated. You know, I think those are decisions that uh, people can make. And Congress, senators, and so on get paid to make these decisions, and they, they would make them. And Iran-Contra is a good example of where the process went pretty you can say it went pretty wrong, or you can also say uh, that Congress had its own reasons for essentially foregoing a workable prosecution of, of North, Poindexter, and the others, and we could talk about that anyway. Um, uh, let's say, President, oh, is the president uh, foolish, or are we talking about broader cultu cultural matters? Uh, that's question two. I, I'm not a big Bush stupid theory believer. I don't think that's what we had here. I think he's, uh, you know, quite intelligent man, and certainly intelligent, more intelligent than many presidents that the country has suffered through. I don't think he just made stupid decisions, as you and I talked about privately yesterday. I think there were reasons which had to do not only from his own inexperience, but also uh, and and the very experienced people around him, uh, but also his embrace of 9/11 as a, as a uh, part of his political identity, which was very obvious. Uh, and very powerful. You know, it's clear, clearly, I mean, the moment we remember is him with the megaphone on, you know, at 9-11. Um, but this became, and it, you know, the story I told yesterday about not being willing to give up war on terror, that phrase, I think is indicative that this was extremely important to him. That, you know, I am a war president. Um, I don't think it was his foolishness. Um, uh, I think he, uh, uh, he and they made mistakes. And in part, and this gets into your um, uh, into your third question, I don't, I'm not a big believer that the Constitution needs to be amended to, and I talked about this yesterday, that the exception needs to be legislated. I think uh, what happened mostly was a result of bad policy choices. I mean, we can talk about uh, in bad political choices by the people in charge. Um, I think that uh, during any, I mean, as, right, as you write very well in, your, in, uh, in Terror and the Balance, um, during these periods, uh, the executive has the initiative. Um, but I think they uh, faced um, a new situation and defined it in a particular way that helped lead them into making uh, very significant mistakes, which I tried to detail uh, yesterday, self-defeating mistakes. In other words, as managers of the response to the attack, they did things that were 
that harmed the country. Uh, you know, we're not talking simply about human rights abuses here. We're talking about policy mistakes in, in a sense, not understanding at the highest level the nature of the threat and the political, um, uh, the political character of it. You know, they, I think at, at the end of the day, they still thought this stuff about, you know, recruitment and what Muslims think of us and all of this is kind of a, a decoration around the hard power issues that really were at the heart of this. And this also goes back, by the way, to trying to concretize it in the Iraq War and so on. You know, credibility, uh, all of the things that they put in the box were wrong when it came to the particular challenge they faced. Uh, so I think this was a policy problem. And the problem is that Congress, uh, which was mostly supine until 2005, 2006, uh, the problem isn't, uh, I mean, that's something you can talk about specifically on how this state of exception evolved, that you eventually had a kind of ping pong game, particularly when it came to torture detainees, between the administration and the courts. Ping, pong, ping, pong. And finally, you know, Congress sat there going, mm, 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 mm. and then eventually, you know, it stepped in with the uh, Detainee Treatment Act uh, and uh, the Military Commissions Act. But it was very dilatory in addressing some of these issues. Uh, Angler, uh, which we talked about yesterday, this Barton Gelman's book about uh, Cheney, has a very interesting point, uh, essentially saying that Cheney, it's a fascinating book, I really recommend it, about policymaking in the Bush administration during this period. Um, and he essentially makes the point, or has others make it for him, uh, that because uh, Cheney in particular was so powerful and so ra radical, I think is a fair statement, when it came to executive power, uh, that a lot of the changes that could very much have been uh, made into law or made more permanent, this did not happen because they were completely extreme in what they wanted. And they started to lose by 2004, 2005. They started to lose these, these fights. And if they had done a little due diligence and recognized the court had certain interests and tried to look at the court, and, you know, they could have avoided some of their defeats in the Supreme Court, which from my point of view would have been a shame. You know, <laughs> I wouldn't have welcomed that because the court played, I think, uh, a welcome role. But it was in part because uh, of their radicalism on these positions and their refusal to institutionalize things, which extended from their views of executive power, that we're in the sort of situation, the kind of ragged situation we are, and that Congress really, this is the last point I'll make, uh, and I agree with what, much of what you say in your book about, about Congress. You know, I'm not somebody who thinks, well, the Congress should have been running things. You know, God help us. Uh, and well, and, and whenever, you know, the, the Congress has been handed these power, or, or, you know, the War Powers Act is a great example of this, right? Congress in, what was it, 73, 74, I think, you know, Congress voted itself the power to say, you know, Mr. President, you can send troops for 60 days, and, but then we have to approve it, and we're not going to have Vietnam again. And what's happened? They've, they basically, they don't want that power. They don't want that political exposure. And this is another demonstration of it. So it wasn't just you had a supine Congress. They kind of are not, I agree with you, they're not set up to play that role. On the other hand, they are set up to make new law that will provide for an extraordinary and new situation. And I tried to suggest, you know, this is ground that I'm not a professional on, you are, but I tried at least yesterday to suggest a little bit uh, where this could be. You know, if you're, if you're going to do a long-term detention, uh, it seems to me you can't, you know, people I respect who disagree with this, but uh, you can't have detention that is tied to the length of the war for a war that's defined as indefinite. You have to change the definition on either, on one of those sides. 
And, um, and I think Congress is kind of the body that should be debating this at this point, you know, that, that we should be helped out here. It shouldn't just be the administration. Anyway, so long, I'm, I'll try to do better on my answers. I'm sorry, but you gave me a hard questions, so. We're getting a public school kid here, so I, I don't understand some of the nuances on all the arguments, but I think some of them do. Quantum physics teaches us something that's almost surreal to me, the idea of duality of light. I mean, light is this pulsating wave of all potential as a wave, and when we observe it, when, when humans observe it, it becomes a particle, and that's kind of like this discussion here. It, is, it, is it right or is it wrong? I mean, is it, is it this potential to solve all our problems, even though we're spending $65 billion a year on intelligence, the safety and security of any city in this United States, and it would come down whether we decide to torture somebody? I'm standing up, that's it's April, just past April 15th. I'm not sure we're getting our money's worth, if that's what the standards would be. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think what we need to do is, is decide, you know, going back to duality, is, is it right or is it wrong? Is it, we can be very self-serving, is it right or wrong for this country? let alone for the world. I, I, think, I think it's pretty clear where I fall on that side. I mean, I, I can't, under, for, for moral reasons, for legal reasons, and as the, the, the practitioner of interrogation in the room, uh, for operational reasons, I see no need for it. And then sometimes, while the discussion becomes very fascinating and I learn so much, I think, wait a second, let's, let's remember what we're talking about. I mean, in my view, torture is the same sort of, is it right or wrong, along with incest, pedophilia, and biological weapons. And I think, you know, that, that's a, that leads me to say, and in terms of interrogation, uh, that context, torture is the biological and chemical weapon of interrogation. Now, if we, if we torture because we're fearful, then why, why wouldn't it be okay for an F-16 pilot when we were trying to take down Osama bin Laden in Tora Bora? If we had used chemical or biological weapons, I can guarantee you Osama bin Laden would not exist anymore. But why didn't we do that? You know, the reason we didn't do that is because we've agreed collectively that it is so ugly that it is, at the long-range negative consequences are so profound that it would not be worth it. It's rather he get away with it. Now, why didn't we say one pilot, hey, he was fearful. You know, I know it was wrong, but I, I grabbed some weapon stocks of biological weapons, put it on the pylon, dropped it, case closed. We all kind of think secretly he's a hero. No, it's just not the way it, it's not the way it works. So in terms of a truth commission or prosecution, this is where I fall. Let's go after the truth. Let's fix the problem and be less concerned with fixing blame. Because again, most of the players involved, uh, right or wrong, are now gone from positions of, 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 of influencing future decisions. So let's fix, let's fix the, the, the blame. And let's do that clearly, let's do it <coughs> concretely, and let's do it comprehensively once and for all. Because this is going to disappear from the radar. That's why I, my, my hat's off, the kudos to Professor Danner for his continued writing on this issue to keep it in front of us because we're, as you can see from this debate, we're not really close to a resolution. We need to get there or else we can bequeath this to the next generation to deal with. And, and I'm not, that's not something I'd be proud of. <laughs> um, it's wrong. Um, I don't have any ambiguity about the rightness or wrongness of, of, of torture. You know, it's illegal, it's immoral, it's wrong. I, what I was, I think, trying to say, and as others have pointed out, my arguments have, have tended toward more, more tended toward the pragmatic, um, essentially assuming um, that it's wrong. And the question is, is saying it's wrong enough? And the answer is no, or at least it hasn't been. I mean, that's why we're here, right? It hasn't been enough. 
It hasn't been enough to legislate against it or to do international treaties against it. It hasn't been enough. So the question is, uh, you know, the reason I brought up the ticking bomb yesterday and tried to chart out a particularly lurid version of it um, is because I think if you, uh, you know, if any leader was in that situation and had decided uh, that this was, in, you know, that's the premise. If, it, if he had decided the only way to get information was through this method, so, you know, you have a point there to say, well, he wouldn't have decided that because it doesn't work. But if he did, which is a premise of the, the uh, scenario, uh, uh, I don't have that much of a problem, as others uh, do, saying he would do whatever he determined needed to be done at that point. It would be, I mean, this is whole Machiavelli's argument you know, about the morality of the statesman as opposed to the morality of, of, of the private person. Um, but where does that leave us? Exactly. Um, I don't agree with people who think it should be legislated, you know, that kind of exception. I don't think so. The, the interesting question is, let's take the whole ticking bomb scenario one step further and say that the president is there, he's got all his people around him, Colonel Kleinman is, is sitting there as a uh, well-known interrogator. What do you think, Colonel Kleinman? Colonel Kleinman says, you know, Mr. President, uh, I realize there's a lot of pressure on you to torture this guy, you know, to waterboard him or whatever, but it's not going to work. That's not the way to get the information. It won't work. Don't do it. Uh, don't do it. So he doesn't do it, and the bomb goes off. And the interesting question here is, in the aftermath, what would happen uh, politically to that president? And I, I ask it not, I mean, you may think, well, that's a trivial question. It's not, because it's going to be in the mind of the executive as he's making the decision, among other things. And, this, and here we get back to cultural preconceptions about torture and about protecting the country and the necessity to make the argument that this doesn't work. And, and one of the, you know, this is where we get back to the whole idea of, a, of an educational moment, as it were, which is to use what's happened, this is the very positive view, to actually educate the country in the opposite direction that the former vice president is doing his utmost to educate it, which is to show the country that, in fact, not only does it not work, but we don't have to give you a scenario to show it doesn't work. We can actually give you cases. Look, we have about 100 of them. Here they are. This is how it doesn't work. Um, so anyway, I'm, uh, do you all want to? I'm talking too much here. So uh, please go ahead. I think no? we should let others ask questions. OK, yeah. Because um, Mark doesn't know uh, who most of the people are in the room, and nobody Unfortunately. knows who everybody yeah. is. So could you? Um, Why don't you just say, your, say your name? Uh -huh. um, I actually had a question about getting Bin Laden. And uh, do you have any? Does anybody in the room have any information as far as was there ever a time when, aside from what you mentioned about using? I certainly don't. Um, no, I, I think the, the best intelligence says he's uh, working with Elvis at a 7-Eleven outside Las Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've never, I've not heard, the, I've heard conspiracy, but not, not anything really substantial. 
I'm Purnima. I'm a grad student in journalism. My question is that um, the U.S. has been giving over control of these um, detention centers. Abu Ghraib has been given over to Iraqi control, and Bagram was given over to the control of the Afghan government in January. Yes. Uh, is that a way for the American government to just wash their hands off what was done? Would we ever know the truth? Because now it's not legitimately under the control of the U.S. government anymore. And to add to that, two days ago there was a BBC expose saying that there is still uh, evidence of torture happening in Bagram. Mm -hmm. so. um, well, I, I think the process of giving over uh, the um, prisons in Iraq, uh, for example, is, is something natural that has to happen. The U.S. is, is, uh, is going to leave. Uh, it is, is leaving. Um, and these are their prisoners now. And the treatment, from, by all accounts, is, is not good at all. It's very bad. And there have been, of course, highly publicized instances of, of, of torture uh, going back a couple of years uh, by the Shia government. Um, so, but I, I don't think it's a way to, as it were, uh, uh, bury the past um, uh, at all. I mean, Bagram essentially is, you know, in some sense is becoming the new Guantanamo and which people can be uh, thrown into. That's a whole other, um, it's a whole other problem. Um, and it isn't uh, in the power quite yet of the, of the Afghan government, so. theories or competing um, analyses, and I wanted to just push you a little more on this question okay. about, you know, um, Steve Kleinman said torture's like pedophilia. It's just off the table. And I think <coughs> Elaine has been emphasizing also, it's just, you know, we can't even understand the beginnings of, you know, our relations with other people if we put it on the table. Mm -hmm. And that's a coherent view, yep. but it's at some distance from a different view. And certainly, and I think Steve is suggesting, um, you know, that the public is not thinking of torture like pedophilia, that there are a lot of things going on in the way the public mm -hmm. approaches this. And one thing you might think is going on is that the public is whether correctly or incorrectly, either making cost-benefit analysis, perhaps incorrect cost-benefit analysis, or is operating out of fear and misinformation, or um, is drawing, so, I mean, something that's interesting to me is that there's a discontinuity between the use of torture and domestic um, punishment and international punishment. So I, I would actually think in the domestic case, we do think of it like pedophilia, right? We're not going to torture um, American citizens to find out things that we could find out by torture. It seems like in the international context, there's a lot more um, uh, openness. And so I, one wanted you to think about the, the, I mean, maybe this is a philosopher's question, because maybe what you want to say in the end is it doesn't really matter what the underlying basis is, what your reasoning is. Right, whether it's pragmatic or um, you know ultimately you know intrinsically wrong, because they point in the same direction conveniently in this case, and so we don't mm -hmm. have to choose. And sometimes it sounds like you're saying that, although people could wonder whether it really is the case that it's some 
point you don't have to choose. And then, so I'd like you to, anyway, just clarify. So you'd like me to choose? I'd like you to, <laughs> well, I'd like you to choose or say why you're not choosing. And then, <laughs> and then I would like you to think about the difference between the domestic and the international case and why there's, you know, it seems like, because that's part, I mean, as I take part of your argument, it's that we've changed. Something has really changed because maybe it was the case that we viewed torture as pedophilia. I mean, we seem to do that in the domestic case, and at some point it seemed like that was a common understanding um, of the country, and now it's no longer a com common, or here's a hypothesis, it was a common understanding of the country, and it's not anymore. Mm -hmm. um, well, first of all, yeah, I, I don't think you, you have to choose at the, at, at the end of the day. I, uh, you know, I'm not sure, Pedophilia. I don't know what, um, uh, whether I'd, I'd necessarily make that comparison. I, let me go to your domestic international. Try to get back to that. Okay. Um, you know, torture has been used domestically. In fact, there's a case, a fairly recent case in '83. Uh, uh, oh God, prosecuting a sheriff in um, uh, Texas uh, for waterboarding a prisoner. As a matter of fact, um, which was you know conclusively shown to be torture. There wasn't any question about it. Um, uh, they, you know, there are legal implications, of course, in the difference between domestic and international, as, as Professor Posner knows much better than I do. It has to do with the difference, different treatment in the uh, Convention Against Torture between the um, uh, torture itself, uh, as defined in that statute, which, which um, or that treaty, which um, Elaine talked about, and the different treatment of um, cruel and human and degrading treatment, um, which is. Uh, the Senate, when it was passed, put in a special, it's not a, really a rider, you can explain this better than I can, but this is one of the ways uh, that uh, the lawyers in the Justice Department, even from the earliest uh, U memo in August uh, 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 2000 and, um, uh, 2002, saw a way out of this. Actually, this is cruel and human and degrading treatment, it's not torture. In fact, the Senate decided this uh, should be defined, that thing should be defined according to the way it's defined within the, the Constitution, notably with the Eighth Amendment. And the, since the Constitution doesn't hold extraterritorially, in fact, it's not illegal if you do it abroad. That's an extremely crude summary, and Professor Posner is probably palpitating, but that's kind of, that's kind of the, the, the gist of it. Uh, so there, there is, a, there is a, actually a different legal treatment, and the administration tried to get out of it that way. That, Interestingly enough, Phil Zellico, you know, the counselor, uh, among other things, counselor for Condoleezza Rice at the State Department, had an interesting argument about this, which is saying, in effect, you can turn the, ar the argument the other way and say that their arguments suggest that you can use it. You know, if you believe what they say, you can actually use it domestically. Um, it's an interesting little piece he, he, uh, he did, which was based on an argument he made within, uh, within the government. Um, Back to your question, I don't, uh, I don't think it's, there's a necessity to choose. I think it's wrong, immoral, and illegal. Uh, but I think the fact it's ineffective uh, is uh, the most persuasive argument to use in the case of those who feel, that, uh, perhaps motivated by fear, perhaps motivated by vengeance, perhaps motivated by a sincere belief that it's effective, and in some instances it's the only thing that can be effective to defend the country. And there are people like that. That's why we're here. It seems to me that that series of arguments about effectiveness and practicality uh, are the most fertile ones to use in this, in this discussion. Um, we'd be in a different situation if we were all sitting around saying, obviously, it's, it's, uh, it's effective. We just can't use it. Then we would ha be having a different discussion. 
Um, but in fact, as you say, the arguments happen to point in the same direction. And that's why I lay the greatest stress uh, uh, on the pragmatic ones. It should be said, though, that several people have pointed out there's a kind of dichotomy in my first lecture in particular between the lurid tales. You know, Josh said this of, of uh, they weren't lurid tales. They're just what happened, according to the detainees and others, of what happened in the torture room and the analysis. And I feel it's, it's very important that people know what happened. I think those narratives are extremely important that people know, particularly because if you, if you know them only through the legal documents, for example, or the policy documents, the, the level of euphemism, which I tried to suggest, is very, very high to the extent that when I debated John Yu a few years ago, I actually read, this was in Bold Hall, I read a document from Abu Ghraib, and he, I could tell, he, I mean, he turned green. He was shocked by it, I could tell. And he was angry because he thought it was a rhetorical trick, as he said. Um, but it's not, you know, and it's, it's it, just because you write it very cleanly in the legal document doesn't mean it happens cleanly when it happens. Uh, and I think one of the things that's most important to do repeatedly is tell people what happened. That's what, at the end of the day, I think my, my job is. That's what my work is. Uh, so I think insofar as we're talking about the wrong as opposed to the, the, the practical, the wrong, it seems to me, is uh, the, the narrative strand in what I've said in telling these stories, because I think these stories have to be told. And I think it's, there may be people sitting in the audience who say, well, yeah, but it was necessary. I'm not affected by this. And that's unfair, him telling it this way. But I think there are other people who, and probably a lot of them, who say, you know what? This country, when I hear what this is, this country shouldn't have done this. Um, so I like to think I'm going along both tracks. That probably won't satisfy you, but that's, that's it. I just mm -hmm. quick, I, I think in order to understand the persistence of torture and its public acceptance, you have to break away from this dichotomy between deontology and consequentialism are absolutely wrong versus I'm open, if it's useful, we could do it. Because I think uh, what you see is that the absolute prohibition, prohibition becomes a motive for doing it, apart from consequences. That is, that the attractiveness of torture is that it's absolutely prohibited. That's one of the reasons people mm -hmm. do it. It shows something to them. It may be pleasurable. It may be. But it's not, they're not going to be, if they're told something about the consequences, it's, since it's an activity in itself, it's imitative, and it, it's, a, it's a breaking of a taboo in a mm -hmm. situation of stress. So I think that it's really one non-consequentialist motive against another. And the, the reason uh, it's happened, despite the fact that Steve and others are convinced it's wrong and can show that, it's, that it doesn't have good consequences is that people have a reason. They want to do it. They feel like it's, it's a, it has an expressive, almost it's a consumption good somehow. And you say, well, why else? I mean, the arguments are so powerful <clears throat> against it. Why does it persist? And we've had, it was illegal. It was, it, it was illegal. Uh, they did it anyway. They found reasons to justify it. And no one's going to be punished for it. I, I so think, that's the reality. And, and it, you have I, to explain that. I agree with you that it's a mark of commitment. And if you look at the coverage of it, when it first kind of came into the press, uh, you know, I mentioned this piece yesterday, this column in Newsweek by someone I've known since college, uh, a columnist for it, Jonathan Alter, who's, who published about six weeks after the 9-11 attacks, you know, time to think about torture, question mark. That was the title of the, of the column. And, you know, this guy is a committed liberal. And, and, you know, at the time, this was a, a sign of commitment, that you weren't going to let your liberalism and you're kind of, you know, right. uh, what's the word? Uh, uh, well, sort of sentimental attachment to these things get in the way of protecting the country. And, that, you know, this was a way of thinking, anyway. I, I just want to say, on the issue of torture being effective, and again, mm -hmm. having read 
a great deal on this subject. I have not seen any evidence anywhere that it's effective. Uh, uh, and and um, as, as Amnesty International says, it's not the fact that it's utterly ineffective that, you, that is the reason you oppose it. You oppose it even if it were mm. effective. But as it happens, it's utterly ineffective. Now, in deciding how to address Mark, I had to choose between one of two things I wanted to do. One was the prosecution question, and the other was addressing the ticking bomb. And, uh, and I, I won't you know, begin to uh, you know, launch into a description of this, but I have written a piece called Five Errors in the Reason of Alan Dershowitz. And if anyone here actually believes that there's any value to the ticking bomb argument, I, I believe that it is just not only morally impoverished, but intellectually impoverished argument. And I would be so happy to send it to any of you who, who thinks that there is a credible um, use of this argument. So if you just give me your name and address, I will Xerox <laughs> it and send it to you. That, that, it's in a collection, in a collection. by Sanford Levinson on torture. And there's a piece by Alan Dershowitz in which he gives his ticking bomb scenario. And, and he's, it's, he called it tortured reasoning. And then I had a piece called Five Errors in the Reasoning of Alan Dershowitz. Um, Yes. Announce yourself. Hey, yeah, my name's Gary Kuhn. I'm the um, postdoc at the Center for Ethics and Society and the Program on Global Justice. And I'd very much like to um, teach a teaching course on global justice, including class on torture. And I'd love to, to read that, um, that article because I, uh, I, I'd like to know what the piece says. But on the philosophical point, yeah. I find the ticking bomb, for example, I'm with Mark. I, I'm just, Swayed by that hypothetical, but then also with Mark, I don't think these cases come up. So I'd be really interested to see. Okay. Um, my question was about rendition. So I was surprised um, in the discussion yesterday, uh, people saying that rendition continuing under Obama and was practiced first under Clinton. Um, and for me, rendition, uh, turning people over to a country knowing that they will be tortured or knowing that there's a very good chance that they'll be tortured um, in the hope of their, thereby obtaining information. Um, it, I, I don't see, morally, I think that that's as bad if not um, torturing um, yourself. There's a, to me, there's no moral distinction. Now, I can understand that there might be a legal distinction, but, well, okay, so my questions are, one, actually in the rendition, that there's legal problems with it? Is it illegal? Um, is it complicity in torture? To what extent is that illegal? And then, if that is all illegal, uh, aren't we, when you're talking about prosecutions and you're talking in the past, shouldn't we be talking about prosecutions of people of the, the current administration, let alone the previous administration, I'm sorry, um, including right up to President Obama, if he's approving, if he's complicit in torture? Uh, well, the legal question perhaps Eric should talk about. I'm not a, I'm not a lawyer. The one thing, I'll make a couple of brief points. One is that um, uh, we know they've retained the power to do it. We don't know, to my knowledge, that they've done it. Um, if, if, they've been, if they've used rendition, I don't know about it. They may be using it. Um, it is true that it was uh, first used under Clinton. There's no question about it. Um, I can't, 
uh, speak, uh, I mean, I'm interested to hear what uh, Professor Posner says about it. I mean, my layman's answer would be no, it should be elite. You should not be able to do that. That the country, you know, should be based on rule of law and transparency, period. That if you want to uh, uh, grab somebody, uh, you can work with their special services, you can do all kinds of things, but there should be a legal process of some sort uh, to either extradite him to this country or to, you know, extradition, or uh, sorry, extraordinary rendition is used in most cases to take somebody in country uh, C, uh, third country, back to his country of origin uh, for interrogation and eventually prosecution. I mean, there are different uses of it. We're we were talking about uh, Arar is, is a good example of uh, a, a horrible case where somebody was grabbed at Kennedy Airport who, was, who hadn't been to, I don't know if he'd ever been to Syria. He was, well, of, he was born in Syria. He was born, he was but, but he did not, citizen. but he was a Canadian citizen, but he didn't spend much of his life no. there at all. Uh, he, he was flown off to Syria and, you know, uh, and tortured very horribly, just horribly. And he didn't know anything. I mean, was, this was basically a mistake. They, yep. made, they made a mistake completely. Yeah. Uh, and the movie rendition, I think, is based on, basically based on that And, that and case. kept in a box that was three feet by six feet yeah. by seven feet for a year after being tortured. Yeah, he was basically kept in a coffin, which, by the way, was the one technique that was yeah. denied by the de Department of Justice, that they wanted to use that kind of enclosure and that kind of cell. Um, but as Elaine talked about, that case is a good example where the Canadians have actually investigated it at length, written a very good and interesting uh, report about it uh, that you can read, it's online, uh, and also given him $10 million and said, we admit culpability. And the you know, the American government has basically said, no, we're not going to talk about this. And I think that is a complete disaster. I mean, I think that this country should be culpable and you know to me that's in a funny way a kind of uh, model of the entire problem that that uh, the policy process became in essence submerged uh, was not reachable by law was not reachable it was to some extent reachable by the public but it couldn't be touched and we're still fighting that and I think Arar I mean it's conceivable as you suggested that that case may uh, come to the surface. I hope it does. It would be, I mean, Stephen's shaking his head glumly, but um, who knows. Anyway, there, there was a Justice Department official who signed that document. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know, you know that. Who he is, I know so that. And, and no you know, this is something, I, I'm not, I'm not uh, disconsolate about this stuff. I think that, you know, there are, I agree with Elaine on this, there are processes underway that may bring us surprising things. And I think the Obama administration, I agree with her completely about Obama's attitude toward time, that this stuff may evolve. Uh, I don't know if, yeah. Um, that was a, almost a bit of an optimistic moment. <laughs> uh, you're really, um, you're really uh, reaching, you're reaching so, completely. Uh, uh, <laughs> I just want to turn it over for the last minute to uh, Deborah Satz um, to give uh, some closing. Well, closing. Um, so first, I want to thank everybody for coming. I want to thank um, Joan Berry, Elizabeth Ross, Jeff Wachtel um, for all their uh, support in doing this. I think the reason there's still a lot of people who want to talk and ask questions is because in some ways we don't talk about this enough. And it's crucially important to have these kinds of conversations. And I want to thank Mark Danner for um, giving us a focus to engage in 
you know, one of the most important questions we face as a country and as a world, and for the commentators, for their very stimulating responses to the lectures, and for all of you for um, coming and engaging with this topic. And hopefully we will keep the conversation going. Here, here. Thank you for really giving us a wonderful occasion. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.